I said last time that we would today try to understand what happened to mankind in, within itself in relation to God and in relation to the created world as a result of the fall. I will begin with the pair of humans. When Adam and Eve were created, you remember that Eve was, as it were, born of Adam at a moment when Adam had discovered that of all the created beings, he was the only one who had no equal. It followed the moment when all creatures were brought to him and he had named them. And then, I have already mentioned this, God brought upon Adam not a deep sleep, as we read in all translations, but as the Greek text has it, which was made a hundred years before Christ, and therefore is neither influenced by any desire to Christianize an ancient text, or any desire of supporting a Old Testamental anti-Christian view. This text speaks not of sleep, but of ecstasy. It was a moment when Adam had reached the fullness of what he could be and was, and at that moment, God brought him into a consciousness above his habitual consciousness. He outgrew himself, as it were. He was no longer the limited Adam, however sinless and perfect. At that moment, he was above and beyond himself. And from this condition, Eve was born. From this condition, something happened that all the potentialities that could not be made manifest in one unique person became manifest in two. Both were one in three persons. Here, it is important to use the word persons and not individuals, because a person, in the terminology of the scriptures and of the church, cannot be distinguished from another person by contrast, by contradistinction, by opposition. 
The word person speaks of the uniqueness of every one of the beings. Everyone, in essence, is incomparable. And this is made clear in its own way by the passage in the book of Revelation in which we are told that when all things will be fulfilled, everyone will receive a name which no one can know except him or her who received it and God who gives it. A name, as I told you in earlier talks, is coextensive with the person. And so both Adam and Eve were persons, unique, unrepeatable, incomparable. At the same time, they were one. And looking at one another, according to the words of St. Methodius of Patara, each of them could say, oh, but he or she is the other myself. It is myself whom I see in front of myself. It is a revelation of my own self placed in front of me in all the beauty and perfection that is his or hers and through whom I can see the beauty and perfection which is mine. A person, I mean the word person itself, has been both a revelation and a complication in theological language. Because in Latin, the word persona represented the mask of an actor through whom resounded the words of the play. And when the Greek word hypostasis was translated into Latin as persona. The feeling was in the West for a long time until explanations were abundantly given that it meant a false personality, not a real thing, a mask. But we can turn things in another way. A persona is the visible reality through whom the mystery inexpressible of the being inside is made accessible to others. The immeasurable, unplumbable beauty and truth of a person cannot be seen, but it reaches us through the person, as we see, as we meet one another. And when the fall came, something absolutely tragic happened. Adam and Eve looked at one another, and again in the words of St. Methodius of Patara, instead of saying, oh, but this is myself, presented to me 
outside of me they said I am I that is another one instead of saying he is my alter ego as St. Methodius puts it each of them looked at the other and said I am ego me and this is alter the other one and the tragic thing is that at the moment when Adam and Eve fell away from total openness and communion with God, a mutual communion in which God poured himself out into the depths of humans and the humans received him openly and joyfully and lovingly, at that moment, both Adam and Eve saw him no longer as they had known him before, but as another one. They hid from him. He was not the one they longed for to commune with. It was another presence, an alien presence, a frightening presence. As far as words are concerned, I would like to come back to it in a later talk. But what um, I would like you to perceive now is that the word holy that was an adequate description to her or definition of way of speaking or thinking of God meant someone who was supreme beauty, supreme greatness, that was love ineffable, someone towards whom what could to whom one could, for whom one could long, towards whom one could move wholeheartedly and without fear. After the fall, holiness became a frightening greatness, a greatness such that we could approach it only with awe and not with the childlike joy of meeting one who is loved and who is totally open to you. From the first moment, Adam and Eve perceived themselves as being two individuals. And you know what the word individual means. It means the last term of a division. Beyond this, you cannot divide. <laughs> if you try to divide the component parts of an individual, you get a corpse and a departed soul. And so, they perceive themselves as alien to one another to a certain extent, and yet still one with one another, because the gifts of God are never taken away, and what God has given them in terms of being rooted in one reality, being one in two, and two in one, that would not be taken away. And love that had been perfect, 
as total openness and gift of self and readiness to receive the other, still remain there, however diminished, and to this will come again. So that is in this first moment, Adam and Eve became alien to one another to a certain extent and saw one another as being different, not me, not a revelation of myself. And then when they looked at one another, again they saw themselves different not in this complementary, fulfilling way that had been there before, but in terms of contrast, almost of opposition, perhaps almost of, of alienation, as we see it later. As far as God is concerned, to begin with, all that they had, all that they were, was an act of divine love, of communion with Him, of oneness with Him. If they turn, turn to Him, as it were, giving Him all they possess and all they were, they knew that they were given to Him what was Him and what was His. The first moment when we see a difference, a change, is a little later in the, the story when Abel and Cain bring their gifts to God. Abel is a man who is a shepherd who tills the earth and he knows that all that he has comes from God. The earth is God's. He has not made it. The seed is God's. The sunshine and the rain and the dew and the warmth and the cold they are all of God. And when he brings forth his gifts to God, he gives to God what is his. As we say in the liturgy, bring before thee thine of thine own. When we looked at Cain, at that stage, we discover that, it, that he brings the result of his handiwork. He does not bring what is God's. He brings what is his. And he brings to God not what is his, what is God's, but what he considers as his own. At that moment, he asserts, as it were, his independence from God. I give you what I have made, it is not yours, and I bring you this as a present. And this is why God cannot accept his gift, because it is a rejection of the love relationship, not of the dependence, but of the love relationship that had existed in the beginning between our first parents and God. And then things developed, or rather, before that, things have, had developed between Adam and Eve. The moment 
they no, no longer saw in the other themselves re revealed in beauty they began to see one another as flesh and a new relationship was established between them some commentators of all speaking of the event tell us that their human nature became heavy, dense, instead of being a spiritual body. And you remember, you may understand what um, is meant by spiritual body. If you think of Christ after his resurrection, he was incarnate, it was his body, and yet it has a lightness and transparency that it had not possessed before his death and resurrection. He appeared to his disciples without a door opening. He was there. So was within the limits of their first innocence and purity the condition of Adam and Eve. Now they had lost it because this could be only in communion, in oneness with God. Well, they communed with him and one with one another in him and through him. And heaviness came. And they looked at one another and as the Bible says, they saw they were naked. They had not seen nakedness because one does not see one's own nakedness. They saw their mutual nakedness because they had become alienated, estranged to one another. And then comes another stage in their relationship. They are no longer, they do not meet anymore in love and ecstasy. The Bible says, and Adam knew Eve in the strong sense which uh, we attach now and which antiquity attached to this word. It was not love that brought together Adam and Eve grew into an ecstasy of tenderness and love. It was a meeting of two persons who became aware of their materiality and who discovered their physical selves not simply through love and in God but in an alone of one another to each other but also in, <coughs> in a material physical sense. A new era had begun. And God defines their mutual relationship. It's only if they remain one to whatever extent is possible to fallen beings that the future is possible, that the redemption is possible. And so 
God accepts the kind of limited, impaired love that they are capable of now. And when I say impaired, I do not mean that love has vanished. The Spirit of God was still in them, but they were no longer aware of it as they had been aware all the time when they were in total communion with God. God was there, but His presence had gone, as it were, to the root of their being, to their depths. It was there as it had been, but it had to be found instead of shining and enlightening everything in them as before. And whatever made them one, human tenderness, the forgotten divine love at work in them, but which was in work in them, although they didn't realize it to the full. All that made it possible for the human pair not to be broken asunder, for humanity not to be destroyed, even in this impaired relationship of carnal knowledge added to or darkening the ecstasy of love, they were still kept together. One of the fathers, I think it's Gregory the Great, says that this was the establishment of marriage, because marriage that is a oneness of two in a love relationship, however impaired, however imperfect, is, was the only part that kept together human beings that otherwise will be broken away from one another. And we see a little later in the text of the Bible, in the same chapter, that God defined, not he doesn't define, he describes the quality of their relationship. He says that woman will have a longing for man, but man shall dominate her. You remember perhaps that what I said much earlier in the talks, that the word dominate, we understand now in terms of overpowering. But if you look at the root of the word in Latin, from dominus, the master, it means two things. It may mean the master of a slave, but it may mean also one who is the teacher and the guide. Man was called to dominate all creation, not in the sense of overpowering him, of lording over it, but of being its teacher into the depths of communion with God. And here we find another aspect of dominion. 
both, because if we love one another, we'll give each other deeper and ever deeper into the mystery of love. But there is still a sense of dominion, of power. And this is the tragedy of mankind ever since. On the one hand, on the one hand the knowledge of one another, on the other hand, the longing for one another, on the other hand, the response of power over pure love and sacrificial love and gift of self instead of taking and possessing. I would want to attract your attention to one word that men shall overpower women. Women shall long for men. The word shall is very confusing in many passages because we are accustomed when we read the scriptures to give to the word shall the meaning of a command, of an order. It shall be that way. It is my will. But I do believe that in this passage and in many others, shall means simply that God accepts what the freedom of man has established and says, and so shall it be. So that is what will happen. It is not God inflicting upon the human pair the dependence of the one and the overpowering of the other. It means that after the fall, when they are no longer totally at one with one another and rooted in God, when it is no longer love divine that is in action, but the frailty of human love, tenderness, longing, that that shall be. Here we have got a pair which is an extremely complex reality. On the one hand, the materiality of their bodies has changed, but not been polluted. If I may put it that way, it has got condensed because it hasn't got the freedom, the light of the divine presence at work really within them. But it is not polluted. There is a passage in, I think, St. Theodore of Studium who says that the matter of this world, and this applies also to the human physical substance. The matter of this world is pure of sin, but it is in, uh, that the spirit of man, the psyche of man, puts it in a situation of suffering. 
And so the physical substance of Adam and Eve and their descendants remains God's creation in the way in which I have tried in the beginning to describe the material, autonomous substance of the world. A substance that was created before man and had total autonomy in itself, in its relatedness and relation with God, included into man as part of man this substance becomes a victim of all that has gone wrong in the psyche and in the spirit of man. But this remains pure of stain. Whatever happens, it is martyrdom. It is not pollution coming from inside. And then there is the spirit of God, the breath of God, which God instilled in Adam when he created him. It is a divine presence somewhere that was pervading Adam, filling him, directing him from glory to glory, to fullness into fullness, and which now has sunk into the depth. Several cultures have an image, which I think is perhaps adequate here, of a city of men, women, and children that were pure of stain and who surrounded by a world of evil drowned in a lake. The whole city, buildings, and humans, and animals disappeared in the depths protected against the evil that was all-powerful on earth. And only people of true holiness could hear the sound of the bells coming from the depths of this lake. This is something that has, is an image of what I think has happened. The image of God, the divine presence, as it were, sunk deep and the, as one of the fathers has put it, the task of man is to, to dig ever deeper into his own self until he reaches that depth where the divine presence resides and from which it shines and acts and calls and transfigures every time we turn towards it. The image of God written in the very depths of our being. I remember Father Evgraf Kovalevsky in his young days uh, telling me that when God looks at us, in our fallen condition, in our imperfect state, he does not pay attention to what has gone wrong. He does not see and hear his mouth. He does not see the glorious virtues which we do not possess. 
but his gaze goes deeper and deeper into the very root of our being where he can recognize his own image, his face as it were, reflected in the still waters of our deepest self. This is what a human being has become. A deeper self in which the image of God untempered is present, from which it shines, which is a call to the whole human being to go back, first of all, to a degree of innocence and beyond this begin to reach to new maturity which we call holiness, saintliness. And between the two, between the two there is this tragic region of our psyche. That part of us which is self-awareness, awareness of the created world, awareness of God, awareness of all things, but also distortion. Because it is only in communion with the living God, in unity with the image of God imprinted in us, that this psyche can be a revelation to ourselves of the way in which we must go and to the created world or the ways of God. So we are broken, distorted creatures at the same time because love has persisted, because unity has not been definitively broken. The world is not rent asunder. But if we think of what happened further, we can see that once man had fallen away from that communion of God in which he saw and knew all things, could name and you remember what I said about it, express the very essence of all things. Since then, sorry, one minute. communes with a world that is in the making, 
not in the world which is perfection, because it was man <coughs> who was called to bring the whole world to its fulfillment, which was total rootedness and communion with God and a full development, a full a fulfillment in God. Looking at the world as it is, and with the eyes of a fallen creature, neither Adam nor Eve can see it in its glory, however incipient, germinal, or in its ultimate possibilities. And instead of being a guide, It takes the world alone, its own wanderings and search. And it tries to build out of this world what he remembers was his vocation. To build a world that would be fullness, plenitude, glory. And this is, I believe, the meaning of the Tower of Babel. When mankind builds out of the material of this world a tower that is to reach heaven. No longer from heaven to the earth, but an attempt at reaching heaven simply by the material of this world. And when I speak of the Tower of Babel, I do not mean an actual building, a, a structure of um, water and stone, but anything that can be built intellectually, spiritually, materially, out of the data of a world that has lost its own way because man was to guide it and man does not where to go. And then there is a further development. As the years pass, generation follows generation, what was it? A memory that was get, getting more and more dim in Adam and Eve becomes a legend. And then becomes vaguer and vaguer. And mankind begins to lose even the vision of what should be its way. After the Tower of Babel, we have another passage in the Bible. Mankind, or a part of mankind, has lost all rootedness in its own depths where God lives. What is left is the psyche and the physical body. A physical body which is pure and yet distorted by the errors of the psyche. And God looks at them and says, these have become nothing but flesh. They must die. Not as a revenge, 
not as a punishment, but if they are allowed to live forever, separated from God, ultimately, hopelessly, it will be hell on earth. They must die for one day to resurrect. And in, at this point, I would like to remind you of an extraordinary passage in the writings of St. Ephraim of Syria, who, speaking no longer of the Bible, but of the ultimate destinies of mankind and of the creation, says that it is not enough for the human soul to reach maturity and to long for the resurrection. The resurrection cannot take place unless the flesh, the body, the material support of the created world gives its assent. Here we come to what I began with, the fact that the material creation has got its auto autonomous relatedness to God. They are one with God in their own way. And the spirit of man, even of the saints, even of the repentant sinner, or the redeemed sinner, cannot force itself back into a material existence in the newly recreated world. This is so wonderful and so mysterious. And then we see that death is gaining ground. We've had um, in one of the in a passage of the Bible which I cannot remember where to place the words which struck me very much in which it says and gradually death took hold of mankind established itself powerfully in mankind in the world and we see I think in the fifth chapter of Genesis the generation of the sons of Adam. And we can see they are indicated in succession with their ages. Adam lives something like 960 years. Then his descendants live less and less and less and less. And if you think of the Psalm of David, the span of life is 80 years. And there are two exceptions, two names that come out, Methuselah and Enoch. The one, it says so, because he walk, walks before the face of God, lives a very long life, longer even than ever. And the other one, because he walks with God, is taken back in his youth something like 330 years. So you see that how death conquers the world on the one hand, but not unconditionally, not as a mechanical event, but in a, in a relationship with the way in which mankind relates to God. 
And then another event, another element, Sodom and Gomorrah, having lost communion with God, relating only to themselves and to the other world, possessed of a longing for fulfillment, but not knowing any way to fulfillment. Sodom and Gomorrah turned to impurity, to sin in all possible ways, and are also to meet their deaths because they cannot be allowed to perpetuate evil. They will die, they will stand before God, they will make in eternity discoveries, and one day will come, and to this will come much later in our talks, when God will have conquered and salvation will come to all. At that point I end today's talk and uh, I have a suggestion. What do we do next time? Next time is the only talk, uh, only meeting we have in uh, December. <coughs> Would you like it to be dedicated completely from end to end to questions and answers? And would you like me to continue with talks in January? Or would you like me to give one more talk at the expense of questions that would come later? My personal preference lies with having uh, questions and discussion because with this talk of mine I have finished the first part of what I wanted to convey. We are on the brink of history. The next move will be to consider what happens next. And next, several things happen. A period which we can call the pagan period in the Bible, between the fall and the covenant of God with Abraham. And we'll have to go into this because it will teach us a great deal about other things. Then two branches begin. On the one hand, the history of Israel that ends with Christ and the genealogy of Christ within Israel and parallel to the tragedy of Israel. This will be the next series of talks which I intend to give. And then we'll come to Christ. And I will not tell you more about it because I have an idea of what um, I intend to do, but I could not describe um, talk by talk what will come next. So, I will put it to the vote. Would you like to have a discussion next time or endure another talk? Who is in favor of a discussion? Now, someone who is good in arithmetic, uh, come in, come. 
Thank you. 